Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 134 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that the NHS has not been using a QR code data gathered from hospitality venues during its test and trace exercise for COVID-19. Staying on the COVID-19 theme, we have an open letter from a number of European medical bodies expressing their agreement with the EU-UK draft data adequacy statement which we brought you in last week's episode of the GD Public Show. And then we travel to Gosport in the UK where a shop worker is unhappy after they receive details of someone else's COVID-19 test. We then have an extensive interview with Dawn Morton-Young. Dawn is a career enhancement coach, an HR consultant, a columnist and a speaker. And she's the founder of the first HR consultancy for employees called Employee Angels. So please do listen to that interview. We cover a lot of issues, not all GDPR related, but all nonetheless of interest to anyone working in the HR or GDPR field. We then have news of a data breach at SITA, which is affecting the Star Alliance of Airlines right around the world. And we then have news of a company that's been fined for not diligently fixing security vulnerabilities. We then travel to the US, where the state of Virginia has introduced the CDPA Privacy Act. And we then return to Europe to look at the case of what is and what is not non-material damages as far as GDPR is concerned. And then finally this week we have news that the Cabinet Office has opened the recruitment process for a successor to Elizabeth Denham, who steps down as UK ICO in October this year. So as always, a mix of articles for you. We do hope you find them useful and informative. And as always, if you have any feedback, please do email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible to reply to each piece of feedback individually. Stay home, stay safe. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you would have heard us talk about the QR codes displayed, particularly at hospitality venues across the UK, for people to scan in when they visit the venue so that the data can then be used by NHS Test and Trace. However, in a confidential report obtained by Sky News this week, it appeared that data from hundreds of millions of check-ins by people who visited pubs, restaurants and hairdressers was barely used by Test and Trace. The report admits that the failure of the £22 billion service to use the data for alerts or contact tracing meant thousands of people were not warned they might be at risk of infection, particularly leading to the spread of the coronavirus. To make matters worse, where coronavirus data from venues was used, public health officials encouraged pubs and restaurants to contact the customers directly. This is a breach of data protection law because that's not the reason the information was collected in the first place, and it could potentially leave those pubs and restaurants open to legal action. So if you are a hospitality venue, or a hairdresser's or similar and you're contacted by test and trace and asked to contact your customers say no that you're not going to do it because it's not your job it's either the job of test and trace nhs or the local authority but it's not your job as a hospitality provider to contact your customers in that way and indeed if you do you are in breach of gdpr 
We're hoping to get a statement from NHS Test and Trace to go alongside this article, but we've not received it by the time we go to broadcast, so we'll hopefully be able to bring it to you in next week's edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. In the wake of COVID-19, European health organisations have welcomed the draft decision on adequacy issued by the European Commission last week because it allows for data transfer between the EU and the UK in relation to COVID-19 to continue. In a joint letter, a group of health organisations said recognition of the adequacy of the UK data protection regime is vital for the functioning of the European health sector. They urge the European Data Protection Board and Member States to support the draft adequacy decision so that it can be formally adopted as soon as possible. The letter has been signed by the NHS Confederation, the European Patients Forum, Cancer Research, the British Medical Association, the European Organisation for Research and Treatment of Cancer, the Federation of European Dental Competent Authorities and Regulators, the Standing Committee of European Doctors, the European Brain Council, the European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs, the European Society for Paediatric Ontology, Europabio, Nanotechia, the Association of the European Self-Medication Industry, European Junior Doctors Association, the European Union of General Practitioners, Eurodis, Federation of European Academies of Medicine, European Blood Alliance, the European Cancer Patient Coalition, the European Hospital and Healthcare Employers Association, and the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. The letter says that the draft adequacy decision will allow cooperation between the EU and UK researchers on clinical trials and epidemiological research to continue and safeguard access for EEA qualified medical professionals for opportunities for clinical practice and research in the UK. For the NHS Confederation, the Senior International Policy Manager, Rosie Richards, said this preliminary decision from the Commission is a positive first step to ensure the continued secure free flow of personal data and we are so glad to see so many of our European health counterparts coming out to support UK-EU cooperation and emphasising that this agreement is vital for the healthcare sector. Vora Zirova, European Commission Vice President for Values and Transparency, said ensuring free and safe flow of personal data is crucial for businesses and citizens on both sides of the channel. The UK has left the EU but not the European privacy family. Didier Reinders, the Commissioner for Justice, said EU citizens' fundamental right to data protection must never be compromised when personal data travels across the channel. The adequacy decisions, once adopted, would ensure that's the case. Stay home, stay safe. To Gosport on the south coast of England now, and a Gosport shop worker who was given someone else's COVID-19 test results and their NHS number in a GDPR breach. Lynn McCosslin from Gosport went to the new rapid testing centre in the Swandate Halls, Bury Road, on February the 24th. The 57-year-old, who has worked at the news box in Bockhurst Road in Gosport for seven years, got an email within an hour of being tested. But instead of getting her results, she got someone else's, along with her address, date of birth and national house service number. She said this left her upset, angry and confused, because she was worried that the same thing could happen to her data. We've approached the relevant NHS testing service for comment, but not received anything before we went to broadcast. So if we do receive a comment from them, we will just bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. So it's my pleasure this week on the GDPR Weekly Show to welcome Dawn Morton-Young, 
the Dawn Morton Young, or Connie Mitchell, as she's known in the entertainment world, is a career enhancement coach, HR consultant, columnist, and speaker. She's the founder and director of the UK's first HR consultancy for employees, Employee Angels. With a mother hat, Dawn is a backing vocalist and session singer, having worked with artists such as Emily Sandy, Ellie Goulding, and Madonna. Dawn has been featured as a contributor in major news publications such as the Daily Telegraph and the Times, as well as the Real Business Magazine. She's a mother to four daughters and lives in southwest Hertfordshire. Well, with all that, Dawn, welcome to the uh, Digital Weekly Show. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. You know what? Whenever I hear people reel it out, I just think I'm like I must be an octopus or a spider or something <laughs> while I'm able to <laughs> to juggle so many things. But thanks so much, Keith, for having me on the show. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Um, and although we're, you know, I don't work, I'm not in GDPR, but we all know that it affects you know everything that we do now even sure. as, a, as a lay person um so it's it's funny because I was not so long ago or last year a victim of a GDPR breach myself where my um uh my landlord breached the details of all of their tenants uh-huh. um so you know it was a quite a major thing as well sure. so you know it's a GDPR is a subject that affects us all and, and and within the employment world you know even more so so yeah really happy to come and have a quick chat with you excellent so you know obviously one of the key things that's happened thanks to COVID really I guess is that we've got more and more people working at home and obviously that presents all sorts of issues I've spoken before on a GDPR which is about some of the issues from a GDPR perspective but, but be interesting with your view as a as much more of an HR professional, what your view is on people working from home, A, from a GDPR perspective, but B, also just generally, how, how do you think, I mean, a, an example was put to me the other day was that it could impact on people's career potential because their line managers aren't having a chance to see how they're actually performing at the job. Yeah, so I think in this new world, the thing is, is that home and work have become the same place. Yeah. And so... I think that there is a, a great deal of people we have adjusted really quickly, actually, because if you think we've had decades and decades and decades of the way of working that we've been doing, and there's yeah. only been a few people that have worked fully remotely. But now that we're all doing it and then we've got the added complexity of some of us having children at home and we've got the added thing of not necessarily having an office, maybe we live in a shared house. And so a lot of people are finding themselves kind of confined to one room Um, and I think that is difficult and I think that managers are particularly having to adjust because like you say normally in an office environment you may know who your kind of star people are but I think the motivation of people working from home it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit and I think that the um, the energy has kind of changed this year because although we all knew that we wasn't going to get to December the 31st, 2020, and all of a sudden everything would be gone and we'd wake up on January the 1st in a sunny new world, it's almost as if we've come into the new world and is there an end in sight? Mm. We don't really know. Um, and the end that is in sight for some people 
may not be palatable to them. So we're talking about that kind of elephant in the room about a vaccine or no vaccine and all of that type of thing. And so I think that the energy of people in general has changed this year. And a lot of people are just a lot more tired. I know in some respects, I just feel tired now <laughs> because it just seems like you've been pushing against, yeah. you know, water for, for a long period mm. of time. So yes, I do think that the working from home thing it's and it's also we have to remember that as much as them not being able to see how people are performing it's also how are you reward be going to be able to reward people so a lot of employers are seeing people working from home now as a kind of a money saving exercise yeah, yeah. in a way um i've heard of employers wanting to reduce people's salaries because they're saying they're now wow. no longer coming into work um and so they're working from home but then i sit here thinking especially in the winter thinking well i've got my heating on all day Absolutely. the kids yeah. are in and out turning on the lights and leaving stuff on and eating me out of house and home all day so actually <laughs> um i'm probably maybe spending a bit more now that mm, i'm working mm. from home so, yeah, there is those issues. And then I think, you know, the main thing is around depending on what your role is, um, how you keep files, how you, you know, what equipment you're using. And it's obviously going to be a great difference between uh, uh, larger companies and smaller companies sure. and yeah. what they're able to provide in terms of facilities. But you've got things like people working from home, they're working on their own laptops you know what what safety protocols are on those who else has access to those laptops there's not a lot of people that maybe have their own things people have family computers and family yeah. and yeah. so are are the children using that at other times that you're using it and, and and what does that mean for the safety of your data and information and then there's the more open I guess blatant things such as we're inviting people into our homes essentially yeah. on these yeah. video conferencing calls etc where you've got to balance the whole thing of I don't necessarily want people to see where I live or I don't want people to see my face because I, I you know yeah. I've just woken up and I don't look very good mm -hmm. to I'm still a professional and having that eye contact and having that you know um is is something that is um you know, needed so that we can have that continuity of being in a professional environment. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I think you make an interesting point there, especially about the, the you know, we, we, we've spoken a lot on the show about privacy as a data, but I think privacy as the individual is important too, because as you say, you know, you've got the issue as well, I think, and, and I mean, I've had it in meetings that I've been in where people have had their young children playing in the background, maybe. And yeah, I can, I mean, I'm a grandparent now rather than a parent, but I can see that if my children were still young, I'm not sure that I'd want 20 people on the meeting being able to see what my children look like. You, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I think that opens up a whole, a whole different yes, kind of work. a whole other thing. Because, you know, as much as, you know, we're saying, we don't know if somebody's recording from another device mm. whilst you're on a Zoom. So there, there are all of those issues. And I think that some employers are looking, I know one of the clients that I'm working with at the moment, what they've done is they've introduced an extra half a day's leave every two weeks that people can take. Right, so that okay. if they do need to have some time to kind of, you know, do whatever it is that they need to do at home, 
And it's not just confined to those with parents. It's open for everybody. Because sure. as I said yeah. earlier on, we are all in a very stressful yeah. situation yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that helps. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It kind of, it, it opens up a whole can of, of worms really. And whereas before we were separating what our home and personal lives were from the workplace. So if you had a stressful home life, people at work may not necessarily need to know that. No. However, mm. if you're now having to open up your home to everybody and you know you've got a a, a a marriage that's maybe not working or you've got children that you know the, the, the behavioral issues or whatever it is you're now more open to having to yeah. share that also with the world which is it is our privacy and it is our private our private lives so there are kind of ongoing issues until we get to the point where people have kind of now because we all work from home have set up office areas if it's yeah, not offices sure. and and yeah. have that proper sort of the infrastructure at home in place but it will take a very long time because we don't all have those resources to be able to have that set up and 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 that way of working no i think that's very true and i mean certainly i'm, I'm aware of somebody uh, that I, I know who she actually really is having mental health problems in in, in a subdued way but mental health problems nonetheless because she actually welcomed going in the office every day because it was the only place she saw people because she lived on her own and, and yeah. has no particular desire for a relationship at the moment. And so she's, you, you know, to her going into the office and actually sitting with her colleagues and, and being able to have that water to the discussion that we, we all have about the news of the day or how our children are or whatever, um, she was really missing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that that's an issue too. And I, I do worry a little bit about, what mental health problems are we're sort of storing up for the future that we don't perhaps don't even realize ourselves are there at the moment if you know what I mean and I've said this year one of the things that we're really keen on at the moment is around the well-being part of things because I've said that this year is when we're going to see more of a breakdown I think because I think last year we were all kind of living on adrenaline and yeah. on a this is new and oh my gosh mm. we've got you know everything's closed and it was a little bit of an adventure yeah. you know it's, it's yeah. kind of that type of thing but I think we've come into this year now and it's it's this is when people are realizing how they've been hit financially how Mm. they've been hit socially if they've lost people and in the workplace we've got that as well we have to remember that right now people's personal lives are very much in their professional lives so where you may have people that have been ill you know you've got colleagues who are perhaps in a coma or have and all of those things are going to play on you Mm. mentally Mm. you know if you've lost family members just the whole fear that we're kind of engulfed in at the moment yeah is, is a lot and I think that employers need to keep a lookout on that and even when we're talking about this subject of GDPR it's kind of, you know, yes, we need to make sure that people are being careful, etc. But we also need to remember that people are being burdened by a lot yeah. right now. And to make that as simple and easy as they possibly can, you know, that the employer should be trying to make that as simple and easy as they possibly can for employees at the moment. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. So what would you say then, Donna, are the three... If you had to pick three, what what three key actions would you say employers should be taking at the moment? And that doesn't necessarily be, that doesn't necessarily need to be just GDPR related. You know what 
it, what are the three key things that they should Okay, do? so I think it's really keeping track of your employees. So what I mean by that is regular check-ins, making sure that they know what employees are doing. And um, the, the other thing is, also having flexibility so i think as much as employees are having to have flexibility working from home sure, employers yeah. need to also afford that flexibility not to the point where you know you've got blatant underperforming but definitely to where they're, they're being supportive of things that might be happening whilst you know you're at home so i'll give you an example my um youngest daughter has a, a, a disability so she's got a degenerative um illness and so now she's gone back to school but there was a point in time where she wasn't in the first lockdown she wasn't and it was really difficult for me because she's got partial sight as well as mobility issues as well as cognitive issues so how can I leave her to do worksheets that school is sending? It doesn't work like that. I mm. literally have to be there all day long. And there was nothing that I could do. And if I wasn't helping her, she'd literally be sat there with her iPad and she has to hold her iPad so close to her eyes anyway to be able to see that I was feeling like a really crappy mum because there I was allowing my oh. child to. So I think that employers need to have that flexibility and realise that people people's home lives are now their problem. Yeah. Whereas yeah. before when we were going into the office yes the employer always has a duty of care Mm. but they could be a lot more separated out because the employee may not let you into their home lives either but at the moment it's kind of forced Mm. upon um everyone so i would say that it's uh, definitely having that flexibility and i would think in terms of bringing in the dpr a a little bit as well i think that it's definitely getting in things like a, a video conferencing policy right yeah um, because not only we we're talking about GDPR, but just in terms of behaviour normally. So, for example, um, I have been in Zoom meetings where people have had, um, as you say, a lot of kind of not just about the background noise but it's kind of unnecessary like they're not even trying to stop it so you will have like you know children (laughs) screaming in the background and they're just talking louder to override the children I'm like do you not want to tell them to like be quiet or yourself to another room or something so I think that there should be some sort of video conferencing rules that uh, you know talk about um you know who are the providers that you use so is it teams is it zoom because i know a lot of people stopped using zoom because they were worried about you know the privacy of it so who is it that they're allowed to use what happens if they've got more than x amount of people in the conference how they should be dressing depending on if it's an internal or an external meeting yeah yeah you know, whether they should have their camera off or on, you know, it's all of that type of thing. So I was running a redundant, I've been running a lot of redundancy programs during this pandemic, unfortunately. And so when we were going in and having consultation meetings over Zoom, we asked them, do you want to have your camera on or off? So we give that as as, as, as a choice for them, because some people may not be comfortable with it. And particularly if you're being consulted on a redundancy, it's quite in your face yeah. even more so than being um you know working in an office and sitting across the table from someone in a meeting room being on zoom is very much here yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah. um i think again i think having some kind of guidelines in place as to how people and also things about depending on the company that you work for what information you can take down on those zoom calls so say you work in sales and you're having zoom calls with potential clients what information are you 
able to hold what you do to store that information and also what can you talk about can you talk about official trade secrets or sure. you know things yeah. that are going on that those kind of things i think a, a policy on that is something that they should be doing straight away yeah it's, it's interesting what you say particularly about about what you know what people are wearing because i, I know of one organization where i provide them with with, with gdpr support and they've still decided by every time we have a meeting, whether it's internal or external, gentlemen will be in shirts and ties and, and you know, women will be in appropriate dress. Yeah. Mm. And, and now, you know, part of me thinks it's a bit overkill. But the other part says it, it's showing respect to the other people who, who are taking part in the meeting. So, it, it, yeah, it, you know, it, 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 to me, I think, yeah, I think you're right. The important thing, perhaps, is not so much what the rules are, but everyone understands the rules and, and, and sticks by them. So. Turning that on its head then, Dawn, what about employees? What do you think the key things are that they should be doing? So I think um, from a general point of view, I think it's about shouting if you are finding it difficult Hmm. and not just letting that kind of slide. So um, I would say that that's, that's the kind of first thing from a general point of view, but I would also say that, you know, um, doing simple things like ensuring that the area that you are in, if you're in a zoom meeting, for example, that it's free from your own or others personal data so that you haven't got that out. And also I think that employees, may not realize but they are actually considered controllers when yeah. hosting a zoom meeting so as as that they are responsible for what the data is making sure it's proportionate if they're collecting any data and you know how that that data is shared so um I guess from from that point of view, it's around and and uh, sorry, I'm going to split back to the employers. It's about training their training their employees on things like cybersecurity and things right. like that. And from yeah. the employees' point of view, it's about knowing about those things. Um, what what are they going to do with any recordings? Um, yeah. So uh, w- where will those be housed? How long are they going to keep those for? So I think employees need to be aware of those types of things. I would say as well, in terms of when they're in things like Zoom meetings, what are they talking about? What discussions are they are, are you having? Be aware of those things, because whereas as a manager, you may have, you know, discuss with other managers about certain team members performance and all of that type of thing you now need to be aware of everybody's environment that's in that call whereas before you'd be in a meeting room and you know it's housing that meeting room and therefore a private meeting you don't know whether the person you're talking to whether their wife is sitting beside them and might know the person you're talking about you don't know you know there are a lot of kind of variables so I think it's also maybe when going into a zoom meeting with your colleagues um, especially if you are hosting that meeting is to just ask everybody and just make sure that they have they're in a secure environment that they're not recording um that they're you know that that they're not going that nobody can hear the conversation all of those types of things and it seems like overkill but actually you know there may be a lot of breaches that are happening inadvertently where people are not realizing their breaches and it just takes one person to complain about that to the ICO and they will still be liable because the GDPR Mm. laws still stand COVID or no COVID Mm. and in September the ICO kind of withdrew their express um 
lenience that they were giving yeah. to employers by saying, you know, if you can't do X or Y because of the pandemic, you know, then we'll take that into consideration when we're looking at whether we're going to find you or not. But they've kind of um, taken that back now because yeah. this is the new normal. And yeah. so what we're finding is a lot of the kind of allowances and things that were put in place at the beginning are being teetered off now because we've just got to find a way to keep to the law whilst going through these circumstances that are very, very unusual. Yeah, I think that's very true. So, Dawn, have you had any experience at all with COVID tests and the COVID test boxes and things? Yes, yeah. So, um, so one of the things that I was saying was about employers needing to know that when they are asking for information, that it's proportionate, et cetera. Sure. And one of the things that have come up in recent times is around COVID testing. So it's around employers wanting their employees to be tested and also around track and trace. So, yeah. you know, um, what that information is that they are going to give out, et cetera. So I would say, um, first of all, if employers want to have testing in the work, place that they should make sure that the, a, a data um a data information assessment is done yeah, yeah. Um, basically to just check on that so i had a situation where an employee um came to me really because their employer was asking them to have tests done every monday morning uh-huh. So prior, what had happened was they'd do their test and then they would text their information to a manager to say, this is my test, this is my date of birth for the box to go off. And then they changed the system and they wanted people to do their test and write on the box their name and their date of birth. Now, this employee came to me and said, you know, I'm a bit uncomfortable about this. I'm a bit uncomfortable about my name because it's then left in a room and then it's collected later on by the people who then take the test. So she's saying, you know, like how long is my details going to be there? Who can see that? I wouldn't necessarily let everybody know my age, Mm. you know, and also Mm. by having my full name and my date of birth, if somebody wanted to use my details for fraudulent purposes, would they be able to do that? And so I, you know, advised her, because she was a bit worried about bringing it up with the employer, as we all know at the moment where, you know, people are worried about losing their jobs and, 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 you know, what rocking the boat will do in that respect. So I um, I advised her and I said to her, what you should do is to ask them whether you can administer the test yourself. Mm. So the reason why I said that is because it's quite a small care organisation. Right, OK. And, um, you know, to expect them to have a whole new infrastructure in order to deliver tests that is more secure would be quite, especially if nobody else is complaining sure. about that. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. want her to risk, you know, um, having mm. a, an issue. So she, she's gone to them and they've agreed now so that what they do is she goes to the room, she does the test, she puts it, it does the test herself, she puts it back in the box, she puts her name on and puts it straight into the secure unit that they come to then collect the text boxes back from and I think she's also had some confirmation from the company that take the test boxes as to what her where her data is going to go again you know it's those type of things where employers may not now we're in the kind of COVID era there are things that are coming up that employers may never have had to think about because where would they have been a situation where employees would need to write their their name and date of Mm. birth on Mm. something and send it off normally our personal details are kept within 
HR and, mm. uh, you know, HR have our files and maybe our manager may have some details, but sure. there's some yeah. security. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a situation that I had um, with that. So I think, you know, this whole COVID testing and, and also about if somebody tests positive, whether people would get to know who you are and yeah, how far yeah, that is. Yeah. So there's kind of a duty both ways. So you will have Public Health England asking for the information of those people mm. that have, and again, that is when you use the test of proportionality yeah, and you absolutely. look at whether what's being asked, which in this case would probably be seen as relevant, that yes, mm. we're trying mm. to prevent a, mm. the spread of a pandemic. So to share those details with a public government body would be seen as proportionate and then you've got the other side of you know telling people within the workplace that somebody has gone off with um you know covid um and i think that what you would do is you probably wouldn't say the name of the person you would no. say there's yeah. an individual we believe you've been in contact with them and then people will say yeah but there's only two people in my team so i know mm. but obviously from an ico point of view you've done the best you can yeah and yeah. you can't you know you can't anonymize somebody completely because no. you have the added duty of that person the other person and their family and what the risks are to them as well. So, sure. um, you yeah. know, uh, yeah, that, that, that's what I would say on, on that. But it is definitely a strange new world and a strange new era that we are all in. It, it is. And I, 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 can, I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I can echo that as well, because I had an employer who's one of my clients contact me because one of their members of staff would not reveal the result of their COVID test to the employer. Yeah. And... They said, you know, can we insist that he tells us? And I said, well, again, it's down to proportionality, yeah? I said, if you were running a care home or a hospital or whatever, I'd say, yes, you're probably within your rights to say, you know, if you want to come to work, you have to tell us what your test result was. Yeah. I said, but you're not in that scenario. You're running a warehouse, yeah? And, and so, actually, proportionately, does knowing whether he had a positive test or not affect your business well yes it does but i don't think it's outweighed by his right to privacy over what that yeah. what his result was in that situation yeah um and so i mean that's where we left it the employee didn't tell them what the result was as it turned out i i, I mean he's not showing any symptoms so i presume the result was actually negative but unless yeah, the, yeah. the guy just said and and the employee said and i could understand his viewpoint totally he said you know i go to the doctor's for a blood test i don't then come and tell my employer what the results Oh, for my blood test side. Yeah. yeah, but the difference from that is that that's not necessarily going to affect anybody else. No, that's right. I mean, if I was advising them, I might have said, then what they need to do is say to him that he needs to stay on, on sick leave for seven days or, yeah. or whatever yeah. it is to ensure mm. then that he doesn't have the, and then the, the, then it's up to him because yeah. as much as you don't have to give me your data, I also have to make sure that I'm looking after the health and safety Absolutely. of my employees. Yeah. And mm. so therefore, I don't know whether you have a transmutable disease. So I'm going to ask you whether you could just stay off on isolation for seven days. And I think yeah. that, but I'm trying, I don't know for sure, but I think that the government did bring in some guidelines about having to um, share tests. Mm. And I'm not sure what it was, but again, it may be around the proportionality and yeah, what type yeah, of business yeah. they work for. Yeah, it, it was around proportionality. So, yeah, you know, it, but, it, but as you say, I actually quite like your suggestion that one hadn't occurred to me. But, yeah, the idea of saying to him, well, OK, then you stay off for seven days and, and you know, then you don't have to tell us, but that's your, your choice. Yeah, I think that's not a bad approach to that. Um, 
Well, Dawn, it's been it's been a really good chat. We, we've covered a, a lot of ground and, and a lot of things that I'm sure our listeners will find useful. So if people want to know more about you or how to get in touch with you, what's the best way of um, reaching out to you? Yeah, so um, you can email me at dawn at, no, yes, dawn at mlhr.co.uk. So that's mlhr.co.uk and that's for businesses. So um, my HR services are provided to businesses under MLHR and to employees under Employee Angels. If you're an employee and you need any help with HR, then you can contact me at info at employeeangels.co.uk and that's anything HR or anything career wise as well. So thanks very much for having me it's been great and um yeah i you know i'm happy to come back at any time that's brilliant thanks dawn it's been a really good conversation thank you thank you you're listening to the gdpr weekly show with your host keith budden air transport it supplier sita has said that hundreds of thousands of passengers have had their data stolen following a cyber attack on its systems SITA, which services roughly 90% of the airline industry, announced on Thursday this week that it had suffered a data breach on the 24th of February involving a portion of passenger data stored on its servers. The compromised servers in question operate passenger processing systems on behalf of airlines, including those comprising the Star Alliance Group. SITA describes itself as the world's leading specialist in air transport IT and communications and supplies hundreds of customers, including the Star Alliance, which itself is the world's largest airline group. Prominent airlines that fall under Star Alliance include United Airlines, Lufthansa, Thai Airways and Air New Zealand. SITA said it would boot its customers and partners after mitigating the attack and asked the airline group to inform their own customers that their data had been stolen. Air New Zealand passengers, for example, were told in an email that their data had been accessed, including details such as their name, frequent flyer, tier status and membership number. In the statement, CETA said... We recognise that the COVID-19 pandemic has raised concerns about security threats and at the same time, cyber criminals have become more sophisticated and active. This was a highly sophisticated attack. They went on to say CETA acted swiftly and initiated targeted containment measures. The matter remains under continual investigation by CETA's security incident response team with the support of leading external experts in cyber security. Similar to the One World group, the Star Alliance shares data between its member airlines to ensure passengers to enjoy perks and benefits between the partnering airlines. It's unclear how many of the 26 members of Star Alliance were actually affected, but it's known from newspaper reports that Malaya Airlines, Singapore Airlines, Finnair and Jeju Air, based in South Korea, had all been hit alongside Air New Zealand. This is obviously a substantial data breach, so if we get any further update from either CETA or the relevant authorities, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you will know that we've focused lately on the fact that regulators are imposing fines for any number of breaches of GDPR and not necessarily just for data breaches. Now certainly in the first 12 months of GDPR's imposition and in fact probably the first 18 months 
all the focus was on data breaches, and as long as you didn't have a data breach, really, you were unlikely to be fined anything substantial under GDPR. But that's changed in the last six months, most noticeably, with, with fines in Spain of five and six million euros. And now, on the 17th of December, the Polish Personal Data Protection Office issued a fine of around 250,000 euros on ID Finance Poland. The company had been the victim of a cyber attack, but the Data Protection Authority, the Polish Personal Data Protection Office, concluded that the way the company dealt with the incident did not comply with GDPR. To mitigate the risk of this happening to you, it's crucial that you not only try to fix the issues from an IT perspective, but also implement a legal defence strategy to avoid fines, other corrective measures imposed by DPAs, and potentially follow-on mass claims by affected individuals. So in this case, data of the company was compromised following a sophisticated cyber attack. The attacker, after copying the data, deleted it from the servers and then requested a ransom. After receiving the request, the company began to analyse the security measures on its servers, informed its customers and reported the data breach to the Polish DPA. However, the DPA said the company should have identified the threat much sooner. Furthermore, the Polish DPA concluded that the company had failed to effectively and quickly implement the appropriate technical and organisational measures to remediate the breach as required under Articles 5, 25 and 32 of GDPR. Noting that the breach could have been avoided if the organisation had taken immediate action after having been informed about security vulnerability, the Polish DPA found that the company violated the applicable GDPR requirements relating to data security and therefore decided to impose the fine. Companies should also remember that the accountability principle under Article 5, Paragraph 2 of GDPR requires comprehensive documentation. This means that organisations need to document their decision-making so that the DPA can understand why specific measures were implemented or not implemented. Otherwise, companies face the risk that, even if their procedures are up to date, they will face sanctions for insufficient documentation as was the case recently in Finland. So it really is a case of making sure that not only do you have all the procedures that you need, but you actually have them all documented, and very crucially, and this in our experience is where sometimes it falls down, is that the procedures that's actually now in use echo what's in the procedures that are written down, because those procedures may well have been drawn up prior to the 25th of May 2018 when GDPR came in, but in the real world, they may have been varied. Now, there's not necessarily a problem with them being varied, but when you update the documentation to reflect the variation. If you'd like any help with this, we'd be delighted to help you, so please just get in contact with us using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. To America now, and on Tuesday, March the 2nd, the Governor of Virginia signed the Consumer Data Protection Act, the Virginia CDPA, making Virginia the second state in the nation to adopt sweeping data privacy legislation after California, which of course adopted the CCPA. Like the CCPA, the CDPA is deeply modelled on GDPR. However, it does have some unique aspects, and we're trying to cover those off now. To begin with, we've got a bit of a leniency period before it comes into effect because the CDPA will become effective on January the 1st, 2023, which is the same day that the California Privacy Rights of 2020, the California CPRA, will take effect. Remember, in California, we now have two acts. We have the CCPA and the CPRA. The Virginia CDPA will apply to a business meeting the following criteria. 
that it conducts business in Virginia or produces products or services that are targeted to Virginia residents, and a. During the calendar year, controls or processes personal data of at least 100,000 consumers, or b. Processes and controls personal data of at least 25,000 consumers and derives over 50% of its gross revenue from the sale of personal data. It's important to understand that the Virginia CDPA does not apply to state or local governments, government agencies, local school boards, financial institutions, subject to the Graham Leach Billy Act, GLBA, covered entities or business associates subject to HIPAA and high tech, non-profit organisations and institutions of higher education. The CDPA does define consumer and it says that a consumer is a natural person who is a Virginia resident and is only acting in an individual household context in providing its personal data. The definition of consumer does not include any natural person providing personal data in a commercial or employment context. So what data does CDPA cover? Well, it covers personal data, which in their instance they're taking to mean any information that is linked or reasonably linked to an identified or identifiable natural person. Personal data does not include de-identified data, publicly available information, house records, data subject to federal, certain federal laws, such as HIPAA, HITCH and FERPA, or data maintained for employment record purposes, including emergency contact information, benefits-related information and other general information relating to an individual acting as an employee, an agent or an independent contractor. Although the Virginia CDPA does not consider de-identified data as personal data, the CDPA still limits the use of de-identified data. Like GDPR, the Virginia CDPA also covers specific protections to sensitive data, which CDPA defines as personal data revealing racial or ethnic origin, religious beliefs, mental or physical health condition or diagnosis, or sex life or sexual orientation, genetic or biometric data processed for the purpose of uniquely identifying a natural person, personal data of an individual known to be a child under 13 years of age, and precise geolocation data. Like GDPR again, CDPA distinguishes between data controllers and data processors. And again, like GDPR, data controllers and processors must post a privacy policy reasonably accessible to consumers that, among other things, details the categories of personal data processed, the purposes of processing that data, how customers can exercise their rights, the categories of personal data shared with third parties and the categories of third parties with whom the controller shares the data. The CDPA also prohibits controllers from processing personal data for purposes other than those expressly listed in CDPA. Some of the permitted purposes include providing a requested product or service, conducting internal research, effecting product recalls, repairing errors, performing internal operations, complying with law, defending legal claims and detecting security incidents. In addition, controllers may not process sensitive data without receiving the consumer's consent. The consent must be through an affirmative act, specific, informed and unambiguous. Controllers must limit the collection of data to what is reasonably necessary for the purposes for which the data was processed, as disclosed to the consumer in the privacy policy or elsewhere, and may not process data that is neither reasonably necessary nor compatible with disclosed purposes for such personal data, unless the controller obtains additional consent. Controllers also must implement administrative, technical and physical safeguards to protect the data. Similar to CCPA and GDPR, in order to process data on behalf of a controller, processors must enter into a binding contract with the controller. 
And the other similarity with GDPR is that CDPA requires controllers to perform a data protection assessment of any processing activities that involve personal data used in targeting advertising, the sale of personal data, profiling, sensitive data and data that presents a heightened risk of harm to consumers. Virginia's Attorney General can request and review a business's data protection assessments. Again, like GDPR, CDPA gives the consumer certain rights. It gives them the rights to confirm whether a controller is processing their personal data, to access that data, to correct inaccuracies in the data, to delete the personal data, to obtain a copy of the personal data in a portable format, and to opt out of certain types of processing of its personal data. In this respect, CDPA goes further than CCPA. The only person who can launch prosecutions under CDPA is the Virginia Attorney General. Upon receipt of a notice of a violation under the CDPA from the Attorney General, the controller will process her 30 days to fix the violation. If it doesn't, the Attorney General may seek injunctions and fines up to $7,500 per violation. The Attorney General may also recover fees to cover the attorney's costs. So it's quite good to see yet another area of the US bringing online privacy rules which are broadly compliant with GDPR. And yet again, I think, goes to show how GDPR is regarded as the platinum standard for data processing right around the world. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you might remember that back in episode 113, we brought to you details of a case in Germany about where a court was deciding on the amount of damages where someone had received incorrect communication under GDPR. In this particular case, the claimant argued that he should be awarded damages under Article 82, Paragraph 1, because a marketing email had been sent to his business email address without his consent. The court noted that the case was merely about a single email that had not been sent at a crucial time, was clearly marked as advertising, and had not required a long time to be dealt with. The German District Court of Goslar considered that the materiality threshold for compensation had not been reached and dismissed the gentleman's claim for damages. The decision was in line with case law of the Federal Constitutional Court applicable to immaterial damages under German civil law. If claimants request such immaterial damages, they must prove that the actual omission towards a major violation of their personal rights. The problem is, is that there is no clear evidence whether such a materiality threshold is required for a claim under Article 82 of GDPR. While Recital 146, Sentences 3 and 6 of GDPR, state that the concept of damage should be broadly interpreted, and data subjects should receive full and effective compensation for the damage they have suffered, Recital 85, Sentence 1 of GDPR, requires a significant economic or social disadvantage to the natural person concerned. As the claimant did not appeal the decision under German procedural law, he decided to apply to the Federal Constitutional Court, arguing that his right under Article 101, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph 2 of the German Constitution, namely the fundamental right to a hearing before a judicial body, had been violated. The Federal Constitutional Court has now granted his request for reference to EU law and ruled that the District Court should have turned to the Central European Court of Justice. The court held that the question of whether Article 82.1 of the GDPR provides for materiality threshold has not yet been interpreted, nor is evident. So what happens now? Well, even though the Federal Constitutional Court has made its decision, it's still up to the District Court to ask the Central Court of Justice for the European Union on its opinion. It's also possible the District Court would deny the claim for other reasons, or allow the claimant to take his case to an appeal in Germany. We'll keep a close eye on this case as it continues to develop, and I mean, it's been going for, 
over six months now, but we will keep an eye on it because it has fundamental issues which will affect a number of cases right across Europe and the UK. It's not just in Germany where this has come under doubt, because in the Netherlands, the Dutch Supreme Court, way back in 2019, ruled that when claiming non-material damages, the claimant must substantiate their impairment, the impairment that led to the non-material damage, with concrete information. Now, the danger with this, of course, is that we could end up with different interpretations of what is and isn't material damage under GDPR in each country across the EU and indeed here in the UK. When we have an update to bring you on this, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. And finally this week, the Cabinet Office has announced that the recruitment process is now open to recruit the UK's next Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, who was appointed in July 2016, after serving as Information and Privacy Commissioner for British Columbia and Canada, was scheduled to leave in July 2021, but she's now agreed to stay in the role until October while the recruitment process is completed. So if you're interested in the job, it's based in Wilmslow in Cheshire, where the headquarters of the ICO are. It provides a salary of £200,000 a year, subject to parliamentary approval, and it involves the management of approximately 770 staff, with the head office in Wilmslow, and offices in Edinburgh, Cardiff, Belfast and London. The ICO receives granting aid of £4.62 million for its work on Freedom of Information Network and Information System Regulations, Electronic Identification and Trust Services and the Investigatory Powers Act and fee income of approximately £46.6 million for data protection work. The Information Commissioner's Office is a non-departmental public body sponsored by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and although the Information Commissioner operates independently in the exercise of his or her statutory functions, some issues require the approval of the Secretary of State, such as funding and the level of fees charged to data controllers. So if you think you've got what it takes, you should have the following qualities. You should have a successful track record of credible and strategic leadership and management, including the delivery of transformative organisational change, experience of working at the highest level of public or commercial life in the UK or internationally, experience of using data to drive innovation and growth in industry, research or scientific field, experience in data protection and data protection rights, commercial and business acumen, including an understanding of how the data protection regulatory environment impacts on business and how to help them, the ability to make sound, independent judgments under pressure and where necessary defend these against internal and external challenge, excellent communication and relation management skills and the ability to represent the ICO's office to a wide range of stakeholders, a proven ability to think through complex issues strategically, independently and imaginatively, a strong understanding of the legal and regulatory framework in which the Information Commissioner's Office operates, strong financial and performance management skills including the ability to deliver value for money and achieve operational excellence and the ability to have influence and impact for the UK internationally. If you believe that's you, then you should send a CV of not more than two sides of A4, a supporting statement of not more than three sides of A4, providing details and example of how you meet the criteria, and two forms that are available from the Cabinet Office website, the Diversity Monitoring Form and the Declarations of Interest Form. Once you've got all that, you should send complete applications to public appointments at dcms.gov.uk. Please put Information Commissioner in the subject line. If you have any questions about the appointments process, please contact Olivia Morrell on olivia.morrell, that's M-O-R-R-E-L-L, at dcms.gov.uk. And if you've got queries about the role itself, you can contact Duncan Ewart 
on duncan.ewitt at gatembysanderson.com that's g-a-t-e-m-b-y-s-a-n-d-e-r-s-o-n dot com or you can telephone him on 0113 205 6092. We hope to be able to get an interview with Elizabeth Denham before she departs from her post and indeed it would be nice before the end of the year if we get an opportunity to have an interview with the new information commissioner when he or she is appointed. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye bye.